Thank you, Wes, for reading our scripture, and thank you for being here. I know that there are probably any number of places you could be tonight, but we're glad that you're here. And we're going to be looking at 2 Timothy chapter 3, 16 and 17 as we talk about our view of scripture, or how do we view the scriptures. In looking at 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 and 17, Paul makes a statement about scripture that it is from God and that it is inspired of God. And so tonight as we think about our view of scripture, I would encourage you sometime to go back and read the 119th Psalm. Over and over again in that Psalm, the writer exalts the nature of God's word. In Psalm 119, 161, he lends insight into his view of Scripture. He said, my heart stands in awe of your word. And I would hope that all of us stand in awe of God's word, that we recognize that it is something very special, and that we are privileged to live in a country where we have access to God's word. And you think about people down through the years that have been deprived of God's word and that have not had access to the truth as we have in this country uh, for so many years. I want to begin tonight by first and foremost talking about the author of scripture. And I want to begin by looking at verse 16 again, the passage that Wes read a moment ago, where Paul said all scripture, some translations may say every scripture, is given by inspiration of God. I think really what Paul is saying here first and foremost is the source of Scripture, the source of this word that we call the Bible is Almighty God. And there's some things that we would do well to consider in light of the fact that this is a book that comes to us from God. Paul said all Scripture is given by inspiration of God. So we're talking first and foremost about the inspired Word of God, that God's Word was superintended. In other words, as Peter would say, holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. He preceded that statement in 2 Peter chapter 1 by saying, no prophecy of Scripture is of any private interpretation. In other words, God's Word did not come as a result of human invention or origin. But rather, it is the product of the mind of God. And so he said that people did not speak of their own will, but rather, holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. And so, this book that we're talking about is inspired of God. You remember the Apostle Paul in Ephesians chapter 3 talked about how he had received revelation from God. And he said he took that revelation and wrote it down in human words. He said, whereby when you read, you may understand my knowledge in the mystery of Christ. So Paul was one inspired writer. The Holy Spirit guided or superintended their writings. Now in the New Testament, we have 27 books. In the Old Testament, there are 39 books. So we have a collection of 66 divine books of divine origin, all of which are inspired by God. 
You remember David many years ago in 2 Samuel chapter 23 said the Spirit of the Lord spoke by me and his word was on my tongue. David, responsible for many of the Psalms that we read. They're a collection of some 150 Psalms. So first I would say that God's word is inspired. But there's a second thing I want to call attention to. And that is the fact that God's word is infallible or unbreakable. Do you remember the psalmist in Psalm 119, verse 89? When he said, forever, O Lord, your word is settled in heaven. There's an interesting statement made by Jesus in John chapter 10, in verse 35, in which he goes back and quotes the psalmist in Psalm 82. And in his discussion with the Jews of his day, he said regarding that scripture, the scripture cannot be broken. In other words, God's word, God's word as we know it, is infallible. It is unbreakable. Let me read for you a statement written by Edward J. Young. Edward Young was a great Old Testament scholar. And he had this to say with regard to John chapter 10, verse 35, in connection with Psalm 82. He said, the force of his argument is very clear. And it may be paraphrased as follows. What is stated in this verse from the Psalms is true because this verse belongs to that body of writings known as Scripture. And the Scripture possesses an authority so absolute in character that it cannot be broken. When Christ here employs the word Scripture, He has in mind, therefore, not a particular verse in the Psalms, but rather, He says, the entire group of writings of which this one verse is a part. And so, really I think it lends insight into Christ's view of Scripture. And isn't it inter interesting that when Jesus was confronted by the devil, after having fasted 40 days and 40 nights, you remember Jesus combated the devil by quoting Scripture. Three times he would say, it is written. And so, the scriptures are authoritative. They are infallible. And I would add this in connection with the infallibility of scripture. You know, when you think about culture, culture changes over time, doesn't it? And sometimes we look at certain scriptures and we think about the cultural setting in which they were written. And certainly we need to be aware of culture and the culture in which the word of God was penned. But when you look at the scripture as a whole, what you find out is scripture transcends culture, which says to us, it is timeless. And so as the psalmist said, forever, O Lord, your word is settled in heaven. Now there's a third thing that I would call attention to. And that is that God's word is inerrant. In other words, it is free from any error. Now, you remember Jesus talked about the truth of Almighty God. He said, you shall know the truth and the truth shall make you free. Jesus would say in John chapter 17, verse 17, sanctify them in truth, your word is truth. So what Jesus is saying is God's word is true. Every part of God's word is true, it's truth. It is impossible for, for the Lord to lie, that's what the Hebrew writer would acknowledge. Paul would say the same in Hebrews, or rather in Titus chapter 1, verse 2. 
And so when we talk about the inerrancy of Scripture, what we're saying is that, that God's Word is free from error. And so put it all together. What do you have? You have God's Word is inspired. It is infallible or unbreakable. And then it is inerrant. Now, we talk about the origin of Scripture. And Paul here says all Scripture is given by inspiration of God. But then there is a second thing I want to ask tonight. What's the objective of Scripture? We ask the question, who is the originator of Scripture? Well, the Bible says God is. But what about the objective? Why do we have God's Word? Why do you think God inspired men over a period of some 15 to 1,600 years, approximately 40 different writers, why would God take the time to record for us words whereby we might live by? Well, I think what it says to us is that God has something very important to say. And God's recognition that what He has to say is necessary for mankind. Now, you remember the psalmist in Psalm 119, 105 said, Your word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my pathway. So what about the objective of Scripture? First and foremost, I would say, God's word is intended to educate us about salvation in Christ Jesus. If somebody were to ask you, what's the Bible all about, what would you say? I mean, think about it. You've got 39 books in the Old Testament. Another 27 books in the New Testament. And so when you begin looking and sifting through the Scriptures, Old Testament Scripture, New Testament Scripture, what's it all about? Why would God give us His Word? Well, I think first and foremost, He would give us His Word to educate us about salvation in Christ. So again, the question, how would you sum up the Scriptures? I would say it's a book of redemption. It is a book about salvation. And really, when you think about the importance of this book, go back to the Garden of Eden in Genesis chapter 3. You remember in chapter 2, God said that they were not to eat, that is the first couple, were not to eat of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. He said, the day you eat thereof, you will surely die. Man transgressed God's law in the Garden of Eden. As a result of that, death invaded the human family two ways. First, man began to die physically, didn't he? You can read where a man was driven out of the garden, prohibited from having access to the tree of life. In Genesis chapter 5, you have a commentary on the death of man as a result of the sin in the Garden of Eden because that expression over and over again is used, and he died. Paul would say in Romans chapter 5, verse 12, through one man sin entered into the world and death by sin. And so physical death is a result of sin in the garden. But then secondly, man began to die spiritually or man did die spiritually. And so as a result of eating the forbidden tree of the knowledge of good and evil, God began unveiling the promised seed of redemption in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. So beginning at that point in time, and by the way, 
God had a plan in place before he ever laid the foundations of the world. Peter said in 1 Peter chapter 1, speaking of Christ, who verily was foreordained before the world began, but was manifest in these last times for you. So, beginning in Genesis chapter 3, in verse 15, God begins unveiling his redemptive plan. And over a period of time, bit by bit, piece by piece, God is unveiling this plan to redeem man. And you can trace that, you can trace that seed line throughout the book of Genesis and going forward all the way to Malachi. You remember in Genesis chapter 12, in order to accomplish the redemption of the human family, God needed a nation of people, didn't he? He needed a people, the Hebrew nation. So Abraham becomes the father of the Hebrew nation. And God would say to Abraham in the long ago, in you shall all nations of the earth be blessed. That was fulfilled in Christ. Because Paul would say in Galatians chapter 3, if you're Christ, you're Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. All who have been baptized into Christ are the recipients of that promise made to Abraham some 4,000 years ago. And then I think about in Galatians chapter 4, verse 4, when Paul said, speaking of the birth of Christ, when the fullness of time was come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law. So God had this magnificent plan, and he begins unveiling that plan in Genesis chapter 3 going forward. Everything points points to the coming of the Messiah. And then you get to Matthew. And Matthew begins his book by tracing the, geneal the genealogy of Jesus, his kingly descent, and he tells us that Jesus is going to be born of a virgin. And he goes all the way back to Isaiah chapter 7 and connects this birth to a promise made by Isaiah some 750 years earlier. And Matthew simply saying, the Christ has come. Now with regard to educating us about salvation, just back up and look at our text in 2 Timothy chapter 3. You recall back in 2 Timothy chapter 1, Paul talked about the genuine faith that dwelt first in Timothy's grandmother, Lois. And then he said that faith dwelt in his mother, Eunice. Then he would go on to say, and I am persuaded is in you also. So you got three generations of people there. All right, how then was Timothy the product of faith? Well, look at what it said in verse 15. Well, look at verse 14. But as for you, continue in the things which you have learned and been assured of, knowing from whom you learned them, and that from childhood you have known the Holy Scriptures which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. What Paul is saying is the Holy Scriptures were responsible for the faith kindled in the life of young Timothy. And wasn't it, wasn't it Paul that said faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God? And wasn't it Paul that we read just a moment ago in Ephesians chapter 3? who said he received revelation from God. He took that revelation and wrote it down in human words so that we might read and understand his knowledge in the mystery of Christ. And that mystery that had been concealed but now revealed 
is that the Gentiles would be fellow heirs and of the same body in Christ, according to Ephesians chapter 3. So we learn about the Christ who came and lived and died and made it possible for us to enjoy the benefits and the blessings of salvation, to be free from sin, to be a part of the church, to have the hope of heaven. So you think about the scriptures are intended to educate us, to educate us about salvation in Christ. There's a second, I think, important thing here. First, the scriptures educate us about salvation in Christ, and then they equip us for service in Christ. Now look at verse 17 in chapter 3. Paul said all scripture is given by inspiration of God, and he would say it's profitable for doctrine, reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete or perfect, thoroughly equipped for every good work. And sometimes we ask the question, what's our purpose? What's my purpose as a Christian? Well, the Lord has given us his word, and one of the benefits or blessings of his word is that it can equip me to faithfully serve the Lord, to recognize that I have, I've been born again to be a servant of Christ, to bear fruit in his kingdom. And I do that by simply taking to heart certain passages of scripture that enlighten me about how I am God's workmanship. In other words, in Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 10, when Paul talks about how we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus under good works, he's saying, look, you're God's masterpiece. You as a masterpiece of God, you have been created anew to engage in good works to bring honor and glory to God. And so as a result of that, we honor the words of Jesus when he talked about in Matthew chapter 25 about feeding people and giving people a place to live and providing clothing for people and visiting those who are sick and in need. We bear the burdens of one another as Paul would say in Galatians chapter 6. We engage in good works for the purpose of bringing honor and glory to God. Now, there's a second thing I want you to see in our study. We talk about the author of Scripture, and that's important. I think we have to understand there is a divine author. And we talk about the origin of Scripture, the objective of Scripture, but then secondly, what about the authority of Scripture? Is God's Word binding on me today? Before I answer that, let me just first and foremost talk about the sufficiency of Scripture. And by that I simply mean that the Scriptures are all sufficient. Now I want you to turn with me and look at a passage over in 2 Peter for a moment. I want to call attention to, to some verses that I think bear this out. In 2 Peter chapter 1, in verse 3, Peter said, As his divine power, speaking of God, has given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us by glory and virtue, by which have been given to us exceedingly great and precious promises. He said, 
that through these you may be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. Now go back and look at verse 3 again. Peter is saying that God has given us everything that we need as it relates to life and godliness in Christ Jesus. There are no deficiencies. Everything that you need, everything that I need, to be equipped as his servant, I have. Now, Peter talks about those exceedingly great and precious promises. There are some things that I would call attention to, not original with me. As a matter of fact, I don't know who originated them. But when we start talking about the sufficiency of Scripture, first and foremost, I would say that there are divine facts that must be believed. For example, do you remember Jesus in John chapter 8 when he told the Jews of his day, except you believe that I am he? He said, you'll die in your sins. Jesus was not talking to me in the 21st century, was he, specifically there. But I can take that passage of scripture and I can come to understand and appreciate that what Jesus is saying to every generation is simply this. Unless I come to believe that Jesus Christ is exactly who he claimed to be, and that's the Son of God, then I'll die in my sins. And as Jesus would say in that context, if you die in your sins, he said, where I am, there you cannot come. So I have the responsibility of examining what the Word of God says. You remember what Paul would say in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, prove all things, hold fast that which is good. I have the responsibility of sifting through the scriptures with regard to Jesus. What's the Bible say about Jesus? Well, the Bible says that he was the God-man. He was God incarnate. That Jesus is an eternal being. But Jesus emptied himself and took upon himself human flesh for the purpose of accomplishing the Father's will. So during his earthly ministry, Jesus engaged in any number of good, well, in any number of miraculous events or performed many miracles, I guess I should say. Those miracles gave credence to his claims of sonship. In John chapter 5, Jesus would say, The very works that I do bear witness of me that the Father has sent me. So it's my responsibility to sift through the scriptures and draw my own conclusions. Who is Jesus? What do I think about him? Was he just a good man? Was he just a noted teacher? A person of compassion? A tremendous orator? I mean, who was Jesus? Well, Jesus said, unless I come to believe that he is the Son of God, I'll die in my sins. So I have to come to believe that he is the divine Son of God, that he is exactly who he claimed to be. It's incumbent on me to believe certain ironclad facts. So there are facts that must be believed. And I think that we would all agree to that. But then there are also commands that must be obeyed. Do you remember when the Apostle Paul went to the city of Athens and Luke says when he got to the city of Athens, his spirit was stirred within him because the whole city was given over to idolatry. 
So rather than just write those people off, the Bible says that the Apostle Paul spent time teaching those people. One of the things that he taught them, the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. But he recognized that because those people were steeped in idolatry, they needed to know something about the nature of God. So he presents an argument on the one true living God. And down in verse 30, here's what he said. The times of ignorance God has winked at. But now he commands all men everywhere to repent. Paul spoke those words, what, nearly 2,000 years ago? I wasn't present on Mars Hill. You weren't there. But we understand that on the basis of Scripture, on the basis of that command and others, that we too must repent. That's a command of God. Now, I think it's unfortunate that we live in an era when people want to diminish what the Bible has to say about commands, about law. But I want you to think about this for a minute. In every realm of society, there are laws, aren't there? I mean, in your home, are there not laws? If, if you are a parent, are there not guidelines? Are there not rules to be followed? Yes or no? Yes. Was in my home. And I suspect it is in your home. In marriage, are there not certain boundaries within which we are to operate? Sure. What about on the work, or rather, what about in the workforce? Can you just come and go as you please and do what you want? Show up if you want to? Not show up? Do your job? Not do your job? I mean, does it really matter? No. Typically, there is an employee handbook. And there is, there are certain guidelines, expectations that you must meet. And you can call it whatever you want to call it, but what they're saying is, look, here are the laws of our corporation. Here are the rules, the rule book, so to speak. So what about when it comes to Christianity? Now, if you go back and look at the Old Covenant, God gave Moses a law, didn't he? And inherent in that law were commands that were to be adhered to if they were to enjoy a relationship with God. Let me give you an illustration of what I'm talking about. I want you to see this in the scriptures. Go back and look with me for a moment at Exodus chapter 19. In Exodus, in Exodus chapter 19, God's people have been delivered out of Egyptian bondage. And God is about to give them the Ten Commandments. And I want you to listen to what is recorded in verse 3. The Bible says that God said to Moses, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob, And tell the children of Israel, You have seen what I did to the Egyptians, And how I bore you on eagle's wings and brought you to myself. Now, listen to verse 5. Now therefore, if you will obey my voice indeed, And keep my covenant 
then you shall be a special treasure to me above all people, for all the earth is mine. What's God saying through Moses? He's saying, look, I'm giving you a covenant. This covenant is going to be binding between the two of us. Our relationship is predicated on your willingness to be submissive to my law. So with that in mind, in verse 6, he said, You shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words which you shall speak to the children of Israel. Verse 7, the Bible tells us that Moses called for the elders of the people, laid before them all these words which the Lord commanded him. Now I want you to look at verse 8. Then all the people answered together and said, All that the Lord has spoken, listen to him, we will do. All that the Lord has spoken, we will do. So Moses brought back the words of the people to the Lord. So what do you have? You have divine law, and you have a willingness on the part of the people to conform to that law in order to maintain a relationship with the Lord. In chapter 20, God is going to give the Ten Commandments. Now if you look at chapter 20, and we talk about the Ten Commandments, and I know that sometimes people have difficulty when God says, thou shalt not, thou shalt not. And sometimes, sometimes you hear people say, that's all we ever talk about is what we can't do. The Ten Commandments. Eight of those Ten Commands are negative in nature. Thou shalt not, or you shall not. The only two that are positive Honor your father and mother and keep the Sabbath. Sometimes we need to step back and think about, think about what God is saying regarding his commands. Now, how does that relate to the New Testament? Sometimes individuals will say, what we need to do is accentuate our relationship to the Lord to the exclusion of rules. All right, I want to ask you a question. Does it sound reasonable to you or logical to you that God would be very specific about, for example, how they were to worship under the period of the patriarchs? And then he would get to the Mosaic dispensation and again be very specific about how they were to approach him in worship. For example, he set up he set apart the tribe of Levi to bear the Ark of the Covenant, to minister before him, to bless in his name, as Moses would say in Deuteronomy chapter 10, verse 8. Does it seem logical to you that God would be so specific about how people were to live and operate and behave under the period of the patriarchs and then the Mosaic dispensation, and then he would get to the new covenant and just say, okay, guys, just do what you want. Does that seem logical to you? That God would just say, you know what, it really doesn't matter. I mean, you just do what you want. It's not logical, is it? There are some folks that say, when we interpret Scripture, that we're too forensic. That we use too much logic. Look, you, can't, you cannot get around logic in Scripture. No way. I mean, we use logic every single day in every realm of life. So I'd ask you, does it seem reasonable that we would use logic in the classroom, on the job, 
on the ball field, but then when it comes to Scripture, we want to throw that out and say, okay, we don't need logic. We don't need to reason through the Scriptures. Now, I want you to think about this as well. God created the world, didn't He? God created the world. He is our creator. He is our sustainer. And He is our redeemer. As our creator and sustainer and redeemer, does He have the right to tell us as His creation how we are to live? How we are to how we are to operate as Christians, as members of the body of Christ? Does he have the right to be invasive in my life and tell me, okay, this is how you're going to live? Now somebody would say, he doesn't have that right. Somebody might say, I don't like that. Listen, if you don't like it, let me ask you if you'd consider doing this. If you don't like what God has said, then why don't you go out and create your own universe and once you've done that, you come up with how you want people to live and run with that. Well, you might say, I can't create a universe. That's right, you can't, and I can't either. And because I can't create a universe, then what I have to do is decide within my own mind, okay, am I going to be submissive to what the God of heaven has said? Now, with regard to the New Testament, and as we think about certain commands that must be obeyed, when you begin looking at the Scriptures, don't you find it interesting that Paul would identify this collective body of Scripture as the law of Christ, Galatians 6.2? Isn't it interesting that he would identify it as the perfect law of liberty in James 1.25? In James chapter 2, he would call it the royal law. In chapter 2, verse 12, he would call it the law of liberty. So when you think about a law, what are you talking about? A body of information that is to govern people, right? Right? When we talk about the laws of our land, the laws, of, the laws that are to operate within our judicial system, are they not binding? Yes. So as we talk about the law of Christ, is it binding on us? Yes, it is. Inherent in laws are commands. Now, is God interested in having a relationship with me? Does God want to have a relationship with me? The answer is yes, a million times over. God wants to have a relationship with all of us. But God has the right to dictate how I will have a relationship with him, if that makes sense. For example, in 1 Timothy chapter 3, in verse 15, do you remember Paul said, but if I tarry long that you may know how to behave yourself or conduct yourself in the house of God? What he's saying is, okay, I'm writing these things. And by the way, when he wrote 1 Corinthians chapter 14, he said that the things which I write are the commandments of the Lord. You can't get around, can't get around commandments. Obedience. I mean, you remember the song that we sing sometimes, Give Me the Bible? The chorus, precept and promise, law and love combining. Law and love. They're not exclusive 
of one another. Precept and promise, law and love, they go hand in hand. When you think about your relationship with your spouse, do you love your spouse? Yes. Are there certain laws that bind you together as a couple? Yes. Well, the Bible says that I've been married to Christ. Romans chapter 7 verse 4. Are there certain laws that I am to honor that bind me to the Lord? Yes. So you've got facts that must be believed, commands that must be obeyed, and promises to be enjoyed. All the great promises of Scripture. I mean, you think about God over and over. Go back to the book of Exodus. Read Deuteronomy. In the book of Deuteronomy, God is saying over and over and over again, if you will do what I say, here's what he says, I'll bless you. I will bless you. He said, if you dishonor my word, here's what's going to happen. He said, I'll curse you. And so what he would say through Moses is, choose life that you might live. Look, God has given us his word because when we follow his word, you know what it makes for? It makes for a better life. It really does. Now, in closing very quickly, I'm out of time. We talk about the sufficiency of Scripture and then submission to Scripture. Really, here's the question. Am I willing to submit my life to the Lord Jesus Christ? Now, Jesus is a king. And since he is a king, he has been vested with all authority, all power, Matthew 28, verse 18. And God the Father said, speaking of Jesus, we're to hear him, Matthew 17, verse 5. So whatever the Lord Jesus says, as the king of my life, because I love him, and because he has been so good to me, I want to do what he says. I want to submit my life to him. Because I owe him everything. You think about the Apostle Paul when he wrote to the saints in Galatia. And he talked about Jesus and he said, who loved me and gave himself for me. Do you remember in 1 John chapter 5, verse 3, John said, this is the love of God that we keep his commandments and his commandments are not burdensome. They're not, they're not something to be born. We don't, we don't keep the commands of God because we, because we feel like we have this tyrant or taskmaster that's looking down over us, but rather we do so because we love God. We love him because of what he's done for us. And we understand he wants us to be obedient to him. But the bottom line is we, we do his will because we understand he loves us. And we show our love to him by honoring his word. I better close. It's almost 7 o'clock. I appreciate so much your kind attention tonight. And I hope that what has been said tonight is helpful. And look, you might disagree with me, but here's what I want you to do. I want you to go home and think about what's been said. Get a copy of the tape and listen to it and look at what the Bible has to say. Examine the subject and re-examine it. Because ultimately, I want you to believe what the Bible has to say, not because I said it, but rather because it's what the Lord says. I might be wrong in certain areas. 
And so what you need to understand is I am not the standard. God's word is the standard. Whatever he says, that's what we want to do. So if you're here tonight and you're not a Christian and you want to become what they were 2,000 years ago, which is simply New Testament Christians, then what you need to do is what they did, and that is to repent, be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ so that all your sins can be washed away. When you do that, the Bible tells us that God will add you to the church, and the church is the community of the saved. And Those who are in the church and who are faithful to the Lord have the promise of life eternal, Revelation 2.10. If you're here tonight and you need the prayers of the church, could we pray with you and for you? God will abundantly pardon as we stand and sing.